Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome to Training with Casey, and I'm your host, Casey Covert. Thank you for joining us, and tonight I'm very excited to welcome my friend, Chris Katsopoulos from Von Farrell Detector Dog Training in Australia. Welcome, Chris. Welcome. Thank you. Good to see you here. One of the things... Yeah, this is an opportunity, isn't it? So Chris reached out to me because he just encountered some of my material and was interested in learning more. And we have had such a good time exploring dog training. And so we decided we had to share it with other people. And we even have an outline today. You guys know me. I don't always do that. But let's start with talking a little bit about you. We said I'd go first, didn't we? Okay. Okay. They all know who I am. So I'll just do it really fast. Okay, so I'm an exotic animal trainer, and I've worked with a lot of different species, 129 the last time I count, and now I mostly train trainers. I'm still a student of the game. I'm always trying to learn and understand more, and it's a special thrill when I am able to talk with other trainers who are also students of the game. So I've been doing this for almost 50 years. And I'm sending it over to Chris. Go ahead. Well, that was short. <laughs> well, I could be quite elaborate, actually. Um, I, I, I'll start from the beginning. I, I've been fascinated about dog behaviour since I was 16 years old. I'm 59 this month. So that makes it about 42 years. Um, I bought my first dog because my family was robbed. And so we wanted a protection dog. I ended up going to a very, well, the only facility in my state, which I live in in the state of Victoria, uh, south of Australia. And um, it blossomed from there. I was absolutely enthralled. I couldn't believe what these dogs could do, which was very little at the time, but still. (laughs) But it was still amazing, (laughs) right? It seemed very impressive. And I thought, I really like this and I want to do this as a, as a career. Well, if you can imagine, in that time of our era, in the early 80s or 1981, there was no internet, there was no Google, there was no communication methods, there was no social media, there's no way of communicating between trainers or anyone internationally. And we were governed by what our immediate group thought, which was a very small circle of influence as such. Well, that took forever to try and evolve out of that because I'm a student of forever learning, always wanting to learn, and I know that there's something more. And I also know that there's more regardless of how much you know. So I've always been one to quickly grasp things or, or, or search for another solution. And and through our career, there were notable people that came out from Germany, um, and particularly in my world being the protection, trucking, obedience dog world, uh, IGP competition, police dog training, security dog training, which doesn't interest me that much at all. But um, 
And in fact, the more I understand things, the more I realize that uh, it's uh, it's a man-made construct. I don't I don't even agree with it, but that's a different conversation. So that evolved into um, wanting to do this permanently. Now I'm not an academic at all, so I never went to school for it. I never I did start microbiology as a student at university, and I lasted one year and left. <laughs> I said, this is not for me. I'm going to pursue my dog training career. But there's a big problem with that. There was no means of income. No one was going to pay you to train their dog. So, okay, so how am I going to live? And so I had to do all these odd jobs that sort of compensated me for trying to keep up this career of dog training. And then it just kept growing and growing and grew into something that was quite amazing. We had to have multiple hats on. We had our dog trainer's hat on. I then become a breeder. I didn't know anything, but I become a breeder of, of trying to improve on what we had. Um, but then again, you realise that uh, if you don't have your um, uh, commercial skills on, you'll quickly go broke, which I almost did four times. Ah, well, that's my accountant, my accountant says to me, Chris, if you don't wake up and understand that there's a commercial component to anything in life, just because you love what you do doesn't mean it's going to grow out of grow on trees. It just doesn't happen. You need to think in both worlds. And I said, golly Moses. So that, and I despise the business world. And I don't know why. I think it was part of my upbringing, but I quickly converted to sort of understanding it from a commercial component. And so we try to develop what we love doing and develop a commercial entity. And it grew rapidly to a point where we had, we were now on Australian dog training. And in our state, we had six clubs in vast different areas in our city. And it was bringing in six, 700 people on a weekend, which was wow. quite vast at the time. And so we had 18 trainers and they were scattered all over the city. And, and that went on very, very well. And when we started counting these dogs as to how many dogs we actually trained, it, it it grew into about 12,000 dogs for that period, which was about a six, seven-year period. And then suddenly the government came in, and I don't know if you know, but this state has what's called the Dangerous Dog Act, and it completely uh, shut everything down in one night. Uh, yeah. So uh, they closed us down pretty much in, rather immediately, and then we become a little bit more innovative and creative. And, and all these types of environmental stresses tend to create innovation if you're, if you're thinking about it properly and so and it wasn't enough and so we then started I was always involved in security manpower so that that created a billable income and then we we thought you know what the USA has always led and been the frontier of uh, detector dogs and we've never had that capacity in our country so we started detector dogs Australia and as a consequence it took four to five years to get it working, but now we do all the government's work in our, my state. So all the huge arenas, uh, Melbourne Cricket Ground, the football, the, the entertainment industry. So everything that you see there with our dogs walking around, that's us doing the searching, which we're very proud of and pleased, particularly working at that level because you're working with very strict requirements. And so that developed another income stream. And so 
On top of that, I started matter. I've always wanted to 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 optimize my dog's health, and and I was not very uh, fond of the current commercial foods, and so I found one of the leading performance nutritionists who developed a brand of food for us. And um, because I care about the genes, I care about the training methodology and and the mind state of these animals and their emotional state. I also care about their health, and it's one one permanent loop, a positive or negative loop. So he made some very, very interesting food for us and it works very, very well and and, uh, and it's grown exponentially without any marketing, incidentally. Uh, I'm very proud of that too. We've just had a damn one Facebook page and, and a website and that's it. And it's all over the country and it's doing very well and we get very, very good reviews on it. Of course, you can't make everyone happy. Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking maybe well, we'll not every dog we, we can't get to about 5% of these dogs that have genetic dispositions that just doesn't tolerate any food. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and that's, and, and, and I've done workshops and training and people have sort of asked for some assistance globally. And, and that's been, that's, I love doing that. I love teaching, absolutely love teaching, particularly my perception of the world. Um, but I'm always looking at growing and developing, always have. I've always been there. My wife says to me, Chris, what the hell is wrong with you? you? How much do you want to learn? Well, I never stop learning. And I can't stop learning. How much I, 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 yeah, I, I can't stop learning. I just find everything fascinating, everything. And um, so that's a problem in maintaining focus, I guess, for me. But uh, um I think once you get to a point where you really are rather competent, I wouldn't call myself a damn expert, but competent, I think that we can pass that on. Well, once they, they say that in business, if you're, you need to work on your business, not in your business. And once you right. figure out how to do that, it makes you more available for taking your business forward. Correct. Well, that's if you wanted to take your business forward and we are happy where we're at. So, yeah. I'll, well, I I'll guess, wait. I guess, or to take yourself forward. Correct. Yeah. And that's always a challenge and and, and always a, an exciting, I see it as an exciting growth pattern. So, um, so that brings me to today. And I've chopped away at all the incidentals in life that I don't need and don't want that are just a constant distraction. And we don't need the income to that level. And so I just sort of narrowed it down to now back to playing with my dogs, <laughs> <laughs> which is what I've always wanted to do, but I could never, I could never do it on a full-time basis because I was going to starve to death. You know, that's really funny because my father died and had a near death experience. And when he came back, he was talking to me and yeah. he said, um, you know what I finally learned? So here's this man that had done so many things. He was in Vietnam. He flew planes. He had, you know, he, he was a very successful businessman, all this different stuff. And he goes, I finally realized that all I needed to be happy was what I had when I was 10 years old. Exactly. And I said, yeah. He goes, you know, the thing that's crazy about you. And I'm like, only one. And he said, you've always known that. Yeah. I've always lived. In fact, I even identified. It's like before you hit puberty, yeah. before you hit puberty, 
you're proficient enough that you're really learning all these skills and all this knowledge and the whole world is adventure ahead of you. Yes. And you don't have any conflicts of interest. Yes. <laughs> you're not concerned with lust, power, addiction. And so somehow I always wanted to, you know, get back there to, you know, you can be every place, but to learn to also be that place still is, I yes. agree, that's a really important thing. Yeah, and, and and that that brings me to this place where we're rather content with what we have and what we do and where I'm at, and I'm fine-tuning my life skills and my relationships. Yeah. Yeah. That's Especially good. Especially with my animals. Yeah. I hope that's enough. Yeah, that's excellent. And in in your different things that you're doing, these are all complex applications with dogs. Whether you're doing competition for IPO and what did you call it? You have an Well, the new name is IGP. IGP, okay. And doing the detection dog work. This is all complicated stuff. And people that are in the business have told me that dogs are only good on duty for like 20 minutes. Do mm. you find that to be true? No. Um, a lot of it depends on their, obviously their personal stamina, but their view of the world. And when they're, the only limitation is their energy levels, which I try to circumvent with quality nutrition. Yeah. And then their physical makeup and how they feel physically, because if they're exercising and they're just getting fitter and fitter, they can go longer and better. Uh, traditionally, when we were training, as we were originally taught, it was the case. They would, they would, yeah, they would have an issue around 15, 20 minutes because they were fatigued. But I don't find that. I, you know, we do huge stadiums here with a hundred thousand seats, and the dogs might get a rest. The dogs let you know when they're tired. I mean, if you understand their behaviour and you're looking at them, you can just say, "Okay, take a take a break for a second, give them a drink," and they and then before you know it, they're up and ready to go. Yeah, they're kind of so, like cueing you. Correct, and you're yeah. just holding the leash. Yeah, and so with all my handlers. Um, I don't actually go out and do any of the detection anymore, but with all my handlers, they are very competent dog people to the best of their ability. And I'm very proud of them because I don't, I, I just see them rarely for audits um, and check on their progress and make sure the dogs are fit and healthy and, and they're happy and, uh, and they're autonomous. It is a brilliant, very well-run operation. These people are treated like it's their own life. And I, I never hear a boo. It's just fantastic. So I was love their impressed to see them operate. We should have queued that up. Can you get to oh, that video? I don't even know how I could queue it up. You, uh, it would be laborious for me. Uh, is, are you talking okay, about the right. on, on, on media? I'll see. I'll see if I can find it. So keep uh, sharing where you are now and I'll find your video. Okay, um, so where are we now? Well, my my 
I'm toning down my breeding program because I'm I'm isolating particular combinations purely from a selfish perspective now. Um, and secondly, um, I'm 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 pushing my boundaries as to the capability of of our animals and what we could achieve in training. And so, hence our discussion. And um, I'm looking at those tiny little things, which seem insignificant, but I think are the most appropriate and most important. The devil is actually in the details. In the detail. Yeah, absolutely in the detail. So timing, um, relationship with your animal, that's a, that's a completely different thing that a lot of working dog people don't have in the appropriate way, and that's yet to be discussed and discovered you know, in our conversation. So th th that's another topic I'd love to talk about. Um, my environment here doesn't lend itself that I can bring a dog into the house willy-nilly. I've got to create particular environments for it to manage it because, um, well, we've got a three-story home and these buggers are liable to jump off the balcony <laughs> and kill the dogs. <laughs> you know what? I have literally had that happen where somebody came out on their second story balcony with their two Rottweilers and the exactly. Rottweilers jump right down. Fortunately, they like the looks of me. God. Yeah. That's fortunately so for them too, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, yeah, it, it works, but I, there's always room for improvement. I, I, I gather. So, uh, I'm looking at our life. Um, if you want to find the detector dogs, if you just put detector dogs Australia and MCG or something like that, MCG. Okay, let me try that because up. I found your website and not the one the particular. Yeah, well, it's on the it's on the website actually. Yeah, it's on like the website. Yeah. Well, front page. There's videos on the oh, front page. Here, this this might videos. be you guys. No, that's good. It was, uh, there it is. Okay, hold on. It. Okay, so I really enjoyed watching this video. You did? Yep. And for reasons that we'll comment on as we watch it. Okay, Chris. Oh can my you God, that's an old one. <laughs> that's that's not that's an old interview about um um. But I, I, no, I, I found I this on my own, and I really liked it, and we'll talk about Well, it's uh, just a whisker past Odark 100, and while most Australians are sensibly still asleep, certain dogs and their humans are uh, already hard at work keeping people and property safe, and we're going to find out how. Aren't we, Ziggy? <laughs> well, if you've been following the show for a little while, you might remember Chris Kotsopoulos, who is a breeder of German Shepherds, among other things, but he's also the man behind this detector dog operation. How did you get into this, Chris? Well, Steve, it's uh, part of a natural progress from the dog world, I guess. And yeah. We found that it was a niche market in the country and it was missing and no one's really doing it. And so I thought we'd, we'd take it up about five years ago or seven years ago now. Excellent. And, uh, well, it proves that you're not a breed snob anyway, for one thing. No, definitely not. We, uh, when it comes to this type of work, we, we can pretty much take on any breed. Mm, and yeah. you've got uh, basically second-hand dogs um, doing a lot of this work yeah, we do. Yeah, rather we do. than dogs that you've designed for the job. Absolutely. And uh, as long as the dog has the instincts for it, I mean, the team does a wonderful job in preparing the animals for the work and uh, we get the dogs quite functional. 
Now you've got quite a team of handlers out here. Quite a good team. Where do you find these people and uh, what sort of attributes do they need to have? Well, being in the dog world, we get exposed to a lot of people who are keen to be a dog handler. And so when we get those sort of people coming through, we scrutinise them quite intensely and uh, they've got a, quite a huge protocol to follow. Once they sort of adhere to that and are quite uh, capable, and, uh, we employ them based on those handler skills and handler capabilities and as long as they meet our criteria. Which are which top is quite, secret, Which right? is top secret. Yeah. <laughs> and it's quite stringent. Yep. Well, Pauline is the head of the canine unit with Detector Dogs Australia. Pauline, what is going on here? <laughs> uh, we're doing a morning sweep for all the vehicles that are coming into the port. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of their security procedures that mm -hmm. they've asked us to, to come down and conduct. Yep. And we work with a dog and handler team. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is we have a, a dog and a handler. Mm -hmm. We have a um, what we call a hand search. Mm -hmm. And they come in and um, make sure that the dog is kept safe. So there's actually the a team of also. two people and a dog. Yes. Yeah. Okay. What are you actually checking for? We're an explosives detection team. Okay. So that is our role down here. Right. There is a couple of other dog units that work down here doing other things. Right. Um, so that's our main role. Well, Holly is one of the handlers, and uh, this here is Ziggy. Holly, Ziggy's got a pretty interesting story, hasn't he? Uh, yes, he has. Bought by a family uh, from a pet shop, mm -hmm. and uh, they were assured that he would be a beagle. Mm -hmm. And as we can see, he's a lot bigger than the beagle, and he kept growing mm -hmm. and growing. They ended up not being able to handle him, yep. so they had to surrender him yep. to a breed rescue, yep. um, Beagle Rescue Victoria. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, because he was so big, mm -hmm. uh, they had difficulties finding him a home. Right. So he's obviously got uh, Beagle in him. He's probably 50% Beagle or, or more, isn't he? Uh, yeah, he's a Beagle Foxhound Cross. Right. And uh, so he's got the, the characteristic sense of smell in. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, also, um, what's great about him is that being a Foxhound mm -hmm. um, in him, he's, got, he's almost the same size as a small lab, mm -hmm. which gives him the extra height, which right. makes him perfect for this job. Right. So you can't use a dog that's too small. Like a Beagle would be a little on the small side you for you. You can use him. Yeah. We do actually have a Beagle on the team, mm -hmm. but he has to be lifted onto right. the high surfaces. That's cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Tracy and Puck are another one of the uh, teams here. Tracy, um, you are a team, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> we are, yes, yes. The, the handler and the dog are actually certified together, is that right? Yep, yep. One so, handler, one dog. Right, so I, I can't, uh, if I was a handler, I couldn't come along and take Puck here and, and start doing the thing unless we were certified together. No, the, no you can't. Okay. No. Now, where does Puck live? Lives with me. Yep. Lives with me. Yep. They um all the dogs live with their own handlers, so mm -hmm. it helps build the bond. Sure, that's very important, obviously. Oh, then I don't work if they don't like you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, Patty is another one of the handlers here. Patty, where's your dog? My dog's actually in the car, and my role today is as a handler. I make sure that the dog and the handler are safe. Mm -hmm. I also make sure to keep an eye on the dog, and if there is anything that has been missed along the way, I let the handler know so that we can go back, retrace the steps, okay. and the dog can perform its job. So the two, well, the handler and the dog and the hand search all work together as a package, right? That's right. We're okay. a unit. Right. What time do you start work? Well, we we come in probably around about half an hour before the ship actually comes in. Mm -hmm. um, and what we do is we come in with the dogs, we toilet out dogs, and then get set up for the rest of the day. So that could be as early as what? Uh, three o'clock in the morning sometimes. Ouch. Do yes. you ever, you know, wish you had a normal job? Absolutely not. This is the most rewarding job. How does someone um, go about becoming a handler for uh, this kind of work? Well, um, you need to do a course, first of all, just 
get into understanding dog behavior, mm -hmm. um, which is e extremely important, then doing a little bit of obedience. Mm -hmm. And then after that, if, you, uh, if you're ready for it, then um, you need to do a course on um, detection. Okay, and that yes. would be with your specific employer usually, would it? That's right, okay. yes. Right, so you guys all do um, in-house training together, yeah? Yes, we do. We okay. practice every day, yep. pretty much. Now, if Nitro's going around the truck and doing his thing, how do you know when uh, he wants to check something out a little more closely or when he thinks he's found something? Well, you see a change in behaviour mm -hmm. first up, and that's another reason why we have a hand search there, because mm -hmm. if I miss it while I'm working him, they'll let me know that that's happened. Mm -hmm. And Tracy picked up on the fact that uh, he went to the cabin a few times, mm -hmm. um, and that's unusual for a dog to do that in just the normal process of screening a, right. a vehicle. So we asked the driver to just pop outside mm -hmm. and um, allow the dog to go inside and just have a bit further right. search. So normally he'll well. just kind of go around once, and if he if he if kind of shows change, a bit of extra interest in something, yeah, we'll just take them back over that area again right. okay. and just get them to research it. Okay. And then um, are they trained to uh, speak when they find uh, something? Or no, like they that? they just have a sit indication. Okay. That's called a passive alert. Yep. So I didn't realize it was that long, but that's such a fascinating piece of video, Chris. Is that hard that's for you to sit there? That's 14 years ago. Really? Yeah. Actually, it says it on the bottom of that video. You'll see it at the bottom left. Yeah, I still years. have to see it. Yeah. Oh, 13 years. <laughs> I do yeah. see it. But it's still, it's so fascinating. And I'll, I'll tell you why I loved it. You're actually getting to see these dogs work. Yeah. And not just with one person, but handler after handler. And it's very consistent. And the yep. people are all very focused and very dedicated. And they're very consistent. So it's just like this looks like a very good program. The fact that you can somehow motivate people to get up at 3 a.m., you've got to, it's got to be something good there. Well, um, I'll, I'll tell you the answer to that. First and foremost, is my main question is, would you work with your dog for nothing? No money. When the answer is yes, then the money is just a byproduct. And these people are all crazy dog people who love their animals and love to work in this capacity. And so they, their added bonuses, they are paid relatively well. Yeah. Yeah, well, also... When things happen well, when you see the animals thriving, when you have good uh, relationships with the animals and at work and so forth, there, there really isn't that much more to life. No. You know, once you get enough money that you don't have to worry about things, it can get like, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> Better after that. Correct. Cool. So you had this uh, long beginning and just like all these people that you're talking about, you wanted to just work with your dog, but yeah. in order to work with your dog, you had to find a way for you to be paid for working with dogs. I'm sure no dog trainers would ever identify with that. No. So, certainly not exotic animal trainers either. And then you got to the point where you're yeah, very comfortable financially and you actually uh, wanted time more than you wanted more outreach and so on with your business. Mm. And so now you're kind of more focused on being a student of the game. 
Not that you weren't before, you always were, but what, is there some gem that you see out ahead of you that you're specifically looking for? Like on that City Slicker movie, I don't know if you remember that, but it was these City Slickers going to a dude ranch and they're riding out to learn how to ride a horse and get cattle and all this. And there's this old crusty guy named Curly. And Curly says, remember, there's just one thing. And then I think he doesn't tell them. (laughs) I think he dies before they ever know. I don't remember. (laughs) No, I don't remember. But I did see the movie. Okay, so there's there's just one thing. Is there just one thing that you're after, at least first? In regards to dealing with dogs or in general? Let's just say in. I'd say, I I'd say stay focused. Stay focused. Oh, okay. So that's in general. But I guess I'm asking a slightly different question. For yeah. you. For me. For you, at your stage right now. You've you've already learned to stay focused. And now, and maybe I'm equating the way um, you go about life with the way I go about life, but I'll I'll get to a certain point and then I'll say, I need to understand this. And then you talk about staying focused. I will go after this until I feel like, okay, now I understand it. Or, I understand this part of it and I can keep going. Do you, have you identified something that you're looking for? I tell you what I am looking for more of patience. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, patience. Um, and uh, we're dealing with so many variable behaviors or mind states in these animals, particularly with the driven dogs that I'm having to re-evaluate how they're taught and how we achieve the end or the outcome, the application. And I'm not happy with the way it is. It's very good, but it could be better. So that's that's where I'm at right now. I love that. So what do you think it costs you because it isn't better? Like you're obviously very successful at doing clarity in the animal. Clarity. I think he, I think it's more um, conditioning and the, and the need to do as opposed to it wanting to do, although we do work on that. There's something missing. There's no, there's not enough. It's, it almost comes back to clarity again and more clarity from the animal, more precision through clarity, more understanding. I was just going to say more comprehension from the animal. Yeah, more comprehension. About, about the do- a job, about the relationship, about what you're trying to accomplish and about how to manage his own self yeah because i believe this methodology or 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 
mindset of training this dog one way doesn't work for me. I believe we could, we need to be able to come to the same outcome for an animal in a multidimensional way. And then the dog has much better clarity and understanding of the exercise and some mental freedom around it. I don't think there's enough mental freedom right now. And there's uh, another thing there's another thing that really is frustrating me and I'm investigating it and I think I have the solution but we'll we'll know in about another 6 to 8 months of investigation when and I and I think you're aware of the world of this IGP so you have a decoy and you have the handler and dog and there's this enormous amount of from a good animal as we call it <clears throat> with enormous drive potential to want to engage with the decoy because he finds it incredibly invigorating. But my question is always is why can't handlers get that same level of intensity with a decoy in reverse with its own handler? Yeah. There is a problem there. Now, granted, there is vibrance in the activity, there's unfamiliarity with the work, but even when there is, there is a different vibrance. The dog is much more enthusiastic to work with the damn decoy as opposed to the handler. And yeah. there has to be a connection. And I think I know what it is, but I'm not sure yet. I'm, I'm working on it. So do you want to wait to say what it is until you get your data back? Well, I think it's... I think it's um, um, the the vitality that comes from the dog not knowing someone, yeah. plus the component of negative reinforcement through the harness, all this restriction causes more drive amplification and the dog is much more uh, frustrated, a lot more driven outwardly, not this way, um, and he's constantly rewarded for it or, or uh, reinforced for it. Um, the dog just shows a different type of uh, intensity out there. I we need to be able to turn that around and the dog needs to show the same level of enthusiasm. And I think it could be used by simply using the same mechanisms that we have, like the harness restriction or, or what we have, what's called a flexi pole. And we can put the dog on a device where he gets the same picture, but it's only engagement with the owner as opposed to a stranger or a decoy. So are you saying and, the owner would take the decoy position? Correct. Yeah. Uh, but do you, think, do you think it could come from a hesitation because the owner is who you protect? Well, that's uh, that's if you see the dog protection, dog per se world as protection training. And I can't stand a word. I hate it. I, I yeah. think it's totally inappropriate. And it's just a man-made construct. But I see it as a, a behavior and I see it as engaging with me and it's no different to me playing tug and playing with a ball. But the dog is restricted and the dog shows more vibrance and more power and you can, you can use different stimuli to make him more frustrated or raise the drive thresholds or levels. And so um, we've been doing it for about a year and it's working. We haven't had enough time enough time in it to sort of bring it up program yeah and so um and then and then another thing that's frustrating me is be careful what you wish for as soon as you create that level of expectation and power then the dog becomes very difficult to manage so you have to have all these 
mechanisms in place, complete calmness, good compliance and good drive states and then compliance and then calmness. So the dog is able to flow into these different states in his brain so that he's manageable and he can self-control. And that's why I liked your term, this self-control. And I and it brings me to a point in one of your documents I read, and I forget the terminology, but I can look it up right now if, if I may. If you got a second, me. just estimate that would be good. Ah, condition relaxation. I think that's it. Mm. We haven't been doing enough of it at all. Well, and it's not just doing it. Just had a conversation with a student, and we have this process. And the overall process is called perception modification mm -hmm. because we set out to change the way the animal looks at and responds to various triggering events. So if an animal was afraid to go to the vet, we want to see that animal look forward to going to the vet. If the dog mm -hmm. tried not to let you clip his nails, we want to see him being the first one to offer. And yes. so it goes. So it has two phases. And the first phase is to teach the dog to master his own relaxation. And that's the condition relaxation. And there's five tools that we use to do that. Um, or there's four tools for that and one more tool that we use for the second part. And more importantly, there's five milestones that the dog has to go through, and they're actually simple. The first is they have to recognize that they have a mental state. Because all of us, including humans, we don't plan what we're going to do. We don't plan to you know, lose our cool and yell at somebody or get upset at somebody or get offended. We just act out in the moment. Mm -hmm. And yet, scientists have determined that for animals that are traumatized or people that are traumatized by something, by some event, the most effective thing we can do to help them through that event is to simply name what is happening. Not tell them what to do about it, not lecture them on it, not tell them they have an inappropriate response, not to say it's nothing, but just to say what it is. So I'll let that just sink in with people and tell you what the second milestone is, and that is to recognize that you have an opposing mental state. Mm. So that if you can be aroused, you can also be calm. And we choose for our cues the word easy and alert. And there's a problem with alert because some people use alert as a cue. So you could say easy and aroused or easy and bingo. I don't care what you use, but you have these opposing states. So that's the second milestone. The third milestone is for the animal to learn that he can move between those states. The fourth milestone is how to move between those states. 
And the fifth milestone is he chooses the appropriate state on his own. So when they get to the fourth milestone, we will ask them to toggle back and forth between the state of arousal and the state of relaxation. And when they can do that, we now know that they consciously understand what they're doing and they can replicate it on their own. And from that time on, we start negotiating with the dogs. If you can be easy, I'll let you do blah, blah, blah. I'll go do this with you. I'll whatever. So we actually set up pre-existing conditions. Yep. The, the second phase of perception modification is something called cycles. And it's a formula. And the formula is based on physiological traits of living beings. You know, there's there's optimal reaction times and there's other things that if you put these into your program, it's more effective, more efficient, safer. But in this process, what we do is we'll take whatever the trigger is and break it into pieces that are so small that it's not really effectively a trigger anymore. Hmm. And we will then set that up in progressive steps so that the dog can earn his way to buy that trigger, if you will. Yes. And in this process, the dog masters, well, before he masters himself, he seems to come to an understanding of what was happening in his head that he was surrendering to emotions and losing his brain. Yeah, you've got all these little white fluffy dogs that come and bark their heads off to big dogs. And the first thing I say to clients is, first, get your dog a mirror. You know, because <laughs> if he could see, yeah, he would just not do that. But anyway, they do it in any case. But once they learn to examine this process of them getting all aroused and what it costs them and what they gain when they learn to manage it, they decide on their own. And I, I never expected that. I never expected that. But that is so important because the biggest fear that most animal trainers have is when they send the animal you know, because most trainers, 95% of what they do is not for performance or competition. It's to fix problems that are going to get that dog out of a home. And so they fix the problem with the dog or as well as they can. And now they've got to send it back into the environment where this problem thrived or maybe even was created. And their success and the dog's success both depend on it. And you see trainers all the time saying, well, if they don't do their homework, blah, 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 talking about clients. And it's like, well, the client never wanted to be a dog trainer. That's why they no. hired you. Yeah. 
So if you've really taught the dog, then, and you're not just managing the dog, if you have taught this dog to do this, to be this way, he needs to be self-managing. But that is often not the case. And so um, it's in this cycles process that these dogs just perfect their self-management and their understanding and their decision to attain that fifth milestone, which is to be self-managing. Mm. Mm. That's that's very interesting. That, that's exactly, isn't it incredible how the universe works? Because that's exactly where we're at. It's exactly what we need to know. Ah, you mean that's the place where you've arrived? Yay, it's so encouraging to see convergent evolution. Yeah, 100%. Now, how much time would you say that you generally invest trying to get past that? How much time? Uh, I've probably spent, I stay on it. And uh, I'm always aware of it. So on a daily basis, I'm, I'm careful of the way I do things with my dog and how I uh, do things either unsystematically because mm -hmm. it sends him into a spin. Uh, I'm careful right. of how I approach him. Trying to randomize things. Yeah, it's randomized. So, but it's randomized. But it's, but it's. I'm always asking him when you contain yourself you'll get to go and do where you want, what you want to do. And he always wants to go to the vehicle because it always leads to bloody playing with the dog and having fun and <laughs> having a, and having a dopamine junkie hit. So, so it always leads to the same outcome. That's, that's another, that's another potential issue. I try not to do that. Sometimes I just take him down there and we don't do anything. We just go for a walk. It is hard. It is hard. It is. You have so many hours in the day and you want to go out and do this with your dog and you don't necessarily have time to drive all over the city. I, I get that. So well, how much time? 10% of the time? That's, that's okay, the so, so let's just take a single event. Let's take a dog that's not yours and say if you have to get a dog past that kind of arousal to be able to do his job or even lethargy, you know, it can be in either direction. Uh, do you know how much time it takes on average? To get past that. No, I don't know how much, how much time. I'm only aware of potential repetitions, but time, no. Okay. So we have found that it takes us an average of 15 hours or less to solve a single big problem. Well, However, there are some problems that we cannot solve. Mm -hmm. But by experience, and this is not, I don't keep scientific data, but I haven't seen as many dogs as you, but I have also seen thousands. And yeah. they're in a certain format, so I only have a certain amount of time with them. And I video a lot of this stuff. And so we can see where they are at the beginning and where they are at the end. And we have some uh, other data. And so 
it doesn't mean like here's a, a literally one case hunting dog really aggressive and reactive toward intact males so this trainer was great he was so dedicated and he had grit and he ended up having to hold on to this male dog there was another intact male dog there and he did this you know stuff until he got this dog to surrender his tension because to get that dog to physically change states to be so-called easy took him two hours however once he did that and he got to the fourth milestone we started doing cycles with this other dog and in a matter of minutes this dog was no longer reacting to this intact male dog that he had been reacting to non-stop and you know that uh, being in the presence longer does not equal getting better, getting over a problem. Yeah. Yeah. However, the other problem that this dog had when he came to the seminar was chasing cats. So we took the dog and the whole class out to the stable to work with some horses. And the dog showed us that he didn't have an epiphany where he wasn't going to be aroused at anything. It was... He wasn't going to be aroused at intact male dogs, but the jury's still open on cats. So we would have to then do that process. And what I found is that it tends to take less time with each additional problem until yep. you, you get to the point where you indicate to the dog that they need to be easy. And they're just like, ah, never mind. And I always say it's because we kill them with kindness. You know, if they, start to react we just get really nice and really easy and the dog's mm -hmm. probably go, oh gosh i'm just gonna be really really calm so that she'll quit helping me yeah but it works we uh, it's amazing how fast it can work that's fascinating i that i haven't do you have any videos of that occurring uh I have before and after videos. Okay. Yeah. I have yeah, like a lot of our own stuff. We had, we we haven't documented enough. That's the that's the silly thing. Okay. Now I have a follow. bunch of videos, and and we could look at those. Uh, like let's let's just say right now we should do more than this one mm. meeting. Oh, oh, definitely. And we could do. Oh, we haven't started. It's already two hours. <laughs> yeah. Well, the audience doesn't know that <laughs> as far as this particular um, broadcast goes. But yeah. I do have videos of the process of teaching the dog to relax and get to the point of being self-managing for the relaxation. Mm -hmm. And I do have a lot of video of cycles. I got to warn you, can you imagine how boring it is to watch this stuff? No. It's like watching paint dry. Because when it's done as I feel correctly, um, the dog is always working under threshold. Mm -hmm. So you never see anything. You mm -hmm. just see step after step after step after step. And then you see this dog that masters himself. Excellent. Excellent. So what I have said 
with other colleagues that I've talked to that work in aspects of dogs similar to yours is that I always try to avoid teaching an animal in drive. Hmm. And in general, they shake their head and look at me disbelievingly. Like they mm-hmm. want to teach in drive. They want that animal to be in drive. Doesn't work. Okay. Tell me why. I I agree with you and I don't think it works well either. No, it doesn't work well. The dog's in a in a in a in a an intoxicated state. Can't think straight. Exactly. Can't think at all. Yeah. Even there, I wish I could remember this man's name. He's an ex-Navy SEAL and he's done a number of videos. And he says, if you do all this self-protection training um, or survival training, you have to know that you need to have a really simple and very tested and practiced way to save yourself. Because the instant, I don't care how proficient you are, the instant you get a bit of dopamine, you lose your ability to think you lose your ability to remember and you lose your fine motor skills. And I'll add to that. You can lose your ability to react entirely. Yeah. Maybe he doesn't because he already has combat training, but my father taught us all this hand-to-hand combat stuff when he came back from Vietnam and somebody broke into my apartment in Boston and they're headed straight to me and they walked through the, perfect position for me to break their kneecap and I could not move. However, in my early training, I had decided that I would always yell, but I was afraid if I yelled at a high pitch, like most women would, that no sound would come out because I don't have a very high voice. So I decided to um, yell really low. And this guy is literally trying to like strangle me or smother me and I'm sounding like a foghorn and the guy goes oh my gosh oh my gosh she's crazy and he gets up and runs away and I go in the opposite direction and I'm fine and everything else so that early training saved my life perhaps but not at the level of highest effectiveness like you know, I could have just broken his knee and saved my vocal cords, but I wasn't able to do that. I was able to do the simpler thing that I had also learned and practiced ahead of time. Yep. Makes sense. I, yeah. So um, fascinating. And I would say that with what I do, I get really good compliance 93% of the time. <laughs> but I I don't have any confidence that if I said it has to be this way right now, that I would definitely get that thing. You know, mm-hmm. it, I guess um, in my world, I actually only enforce four things. And that is wait, stop, drop it, and leave it. Yep. Leave it. And those things... It's a no question. But if I say, could you please come perform for the president of the United States? Um, They might say no. 
And in our particular paradigm, I would try to entertain the president myself, probably telling him other stories about, yeah. So that I know is what I consider a weakness. And one of the reasons I've accepted that up till now, at least, is because in the zoo world, the big problem is the animals will get stressed and get ill or die. And yep. there's nothing I need them to do more than be healthy. Yes. So that is, you know, that's where I'm aiming. And the fact is we've had exceptional longevity with um, the zoo animals I've worked with and my, my pet animals and so forth. But would I like to have both things? Absolutely. I would like to know that my animal loved the work as much as I did and that it was worth it to them to do all this refined stuff, uh, refined, like demanding, demanding details, like your detector dogs. You know, they, they don't get to just look at the truck and go, yeah, that one looks fine. They have to literally go and smell everything. Yeah. And that takes a lot, a lot of focus, as you were saying. It does. It does. And so so the, everything you've just described is exactly what we what we need to implement. And I've I've begun doing this in, over the last 10 to 12 months, but feeling my way through it without the academic um, skills behind it or or with someone that's already done it. And I figure that, hey, instead of reinventing the wheel, I saw it in your work. Hence our discussions. This this convergence needs to occur. It's critical for the dogs. These dogs are so wound up. I don't think it's healthy. It isn't healthy. Just um, dopamine, of course, is essential. Cortisol is essential. But to have that constant dopamine drip, their cortisol is also getting dripped constantly. And it causes insulin resistance. It causes leaky gut syndrome it causes um uh mental incapacity well just on that just on that the previous owner had issues with this dog he would break out in sores between his toes mm-hmm. hot spots uh autoimmune yeah wads of hair missing and within four weeks here it completely gone, and I there was no um, uh, I wasn't giving him any additives or medication or anything like that. It was just simply a mindset change, and it completely relaxed him. So he has, he still has expectations when we go to the field, but interacting with him in his own compound is completely different. He's not spinning. He's not excited. He's not wound up. I've gone down there and he's actually asleep. That's never been seen in four years. Uh, wow. <laughs> he's wow. asleep. Oh, my now, God. That took, that took me six weeks, four to six weeks to, to, to accomplish. And now he can look at me and he doesn't react. Mm. Unless I'm right near the kennel because he knows that the gate's going to open. But sometimes I go in and play with him in there or I do nothing with him and just... Just hang out. 
And that seems to have mitigated it, but it's still there. And I just wonder whether it's an addiction or a state addiction and how much more I can work with it. And I, I, I don't know. It's early stages for me. It is an addiction. We all have that addiction. That's why the news isn't news these days. It's all, you know, here, we'll sell you a little bit of dopamine arousal. Yeah. And we're not really Especially in the... Social media is not, no different. Yeah, exactly. But when these dogs learn how to manage their dopamine, they really, it changes their personality in really big ways. And it's been amazing. For example, at Wood Green, they had a bull terrier that was a, an obsessive compulsive tail chaser secondary distress probably because she'd been in their their shelter before and was fine got adopted out and when she got returned back she had this tail chasing thing she was able to totally turn her behavior around without any medication in 30 hours or less of training and See, we that's fascinating that's fascinating casey because the traditional application would be to punish that behavior Mm. or drug it right yeah i'll drug it I, I never go there but yeah 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 if I, I went to a continuing education thing for vets and a vet that was lecturing on vet behaviorism actually said out loud that no trainer should be allowed to deal with any of these behaviors because they they couldn't do it competently because they didn't have the necessary tools which were drugs and I'm yeah. like, we don't, we don't need them. Yeah. We can't work without it. So, yeah. yeah. Now. Awesome. Awesome. I'm excited. Yeah, there's so much to explore. You oh, had, you had um, asked that I explain SATs. Well, you don't need to in this conversation, but ultimately we you, look, I know it's all over the it's all over your website and it's uh, and people can access the information. But is there I think the question is more so, is there any difference between what you teach now and what you and what's in your documentation in the past? That's a very interesting component for me because people have an evolutionary change in their thinking. Else, but no, not not a big difference. Awesome. But, but uh, there's more than is there. Yeah. So, for example, in um, Chris has uh, bridge and target training technique, and it doesn't have a single picture or diagram in it. Here's why: I was training faculty and staff at the University of Maryland. Department of Animal Science, and we were working together all day. They just needed a reference book that they could use to guide them after we were no longer working together or when they went home studying and everything. So sorry, guys, I didn't put any pictures in there. And we have, uh, everything's evolved. Like what used to take me an hour then took me 10 minutes, then took me five. We teach both targets. I'm sorry, we teach both bridges, the intermediate and the terminal, and 
the two finger target literally in less than a minute. Yep. And if we spend another minute, we can show, for example, um, the other two main targets, which would be the pole target and the station target, and we can teach the hierarchies. So just if you haven't thought about it, folks, it's more important for the dog to come to you than to go to a target that happens to be in the environment. Now, you might not think about that for a long time, but if your barn catches on fire and you're calling your horse out of the stall and you happen to have a station target in the stall, then you're going to know why you want to make sure that that horse comes to you when you say here and doesn't go over and target on the station going, yes, I'm targeting. What is there a problem here? I'm targeting. You need to be able to call the animal to you. And if you don't have a horse in a barn fire and you're a marine mammal trainer, then one of these days your animal manages to get a target pole and they play with it out in the water and they drag it around and you say here and they'll go touch the target pole. And they're like kids. They're like, you didn't say I had to touch your fingers. So we now make it part of the basic training that these are all here as long as they're attached to me. But when I say here, you're coming to me no matter what kind of target it is. So, but that that whole concept only takes two minutes to teach. One question that comes to mind, if I may, what happens when the animal chooses not to respond? What, what, what's the methodology? What, what do you do? Hi. You ask him here and he just doesn't come. Chooses to play with the ball or whatever else you have in the pool. Or very, oh, I'm not a... very, very, very seldom happens. Really? Now, there's an art to it. So let's say you're teaching the original target. So you've yep. just taught the two kinds of bridges, and now you're going to present this target. And the idea is that this animal has to touch it. So I'm going to show you. If this is your animal's nose right here, and this is your target, you put the initial target here, X right in front of his nose, where if he accidentally breathes, he's probably going to accidentally touch it. Cool. Yep. And then you say X, that's here. And then the next one, you move a little to, you know, like three inches to the left. Good. And then the next one, a foot to the right. Good. And the next one is going to be 10 to 50 feet away. And the next one is going to be 100 to 500 feet away. And then you're going to quit for a while. And if you present this first target and you're that far away and the dog looks at you like this and you miss that opportunity, you may need to just wait a little while and represent it because we're taking a shortcut here. Uh, we're teaching you what works fastest. And if you get that finger right there, he's going to accidentally do the right thing. And then yeah. you get to name that. Mm -hmm. But if you don't get it there and you don't get the chance to get that correct behavior and name it, he's just not curious about your hand. And you can sit there and do all this. And he's like, what, is there a fly on my head? 
<laughs> you know, you, they don't understand. What are you there for? So you have to wait a little while till they're curious again about yeah. what's going on with your hand. So as you were saying, you know, being practical and so on, um, you just see what works and what doesn't. And there's a lot of other little tiny things that are in that manual. Like you say, what's changed, what hasn't. And you can tell me if this has changed because I haven't read it in a while. But Father of <laughs> Okay, so now you can read it and, and see if this is. But the presentation comes out like this. Here. And you want to be sharp. Here. It's not going to be a problem with your dogs, but some dogs... Uh, we'll get a little overwhelmed by that. So you may have to key it back a bit. But for most dogs, 95% here. And then good, 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 good as they touch it. Uh, if you do this, okay, so instead of coming out from the solar plexus straight toward the dog, if you come up from above and then down, the dog's going to look on the ground to see what you threw on the ground. Yeah. And so you're just wasting time and creating confusion that didn't have to be there. You just need to present this way. And there's all kinds, like, there's all these little details. And I loved it when you said um, another time that we were talking, the devil is in the details. Because it is. If you present a target like this, it's not enough surface area. The dog is likely to poke himself in the nose or the eye or even get your fingers inside the mouth. But this is enough. If you are working with bigger animals, you might use the back of your fist or the back of your hand. And if you're working with really dangerous animals, you might use a fly swatter on the outside of the lion's fencing instead of your fingers, right? There's reason for that. So it all works, but we've honed things significantly since that was written. Okay, good. Okay. So what I'd like to just say about SATS is that I think the most significant thing about the name is the whole idea. It's um, from synergistic alliances. And what I didn't realize at the time, I thought I'm making this up, right? But it's literally Latin for with others. Hmm. So it is just a way of working with others and we're seeing the animals exactly like we see our human colleagues. So we share information the same way. We're responsible to them. Everything has to be beneficial for all people involved in the work, whether it's an animal or person. So I'm going to lobby for my animal's interest as well as for my own interest, as well as for my boss's interest, that kind of thing. And Why do I believe it works? I think it works maybe for the same reason that your handlers love working with those dogs. If they're, if they love the work, if they love who they work with, if they're treated fairly, if it's interesting and challenging, if they can respect themselves, what else do you want to do with your life? and over and over again yeah we go out and do these things with these animals and the animals will literally save our lives yeah yeah they're watching out for us yeah 
and not because they're a protection animal or anything like that, but their well-being is intertwined with yours. And you go out there and they're like, oh, she's getting set up for a problem. Let me just get in there. And um, it's very humbling. Mm. So I think it's the philosophy that that comes behind it. Okay. Did you have any other questions that you wanted to go over now? I've got a thousand questions, but not at this point (laughs) in our next discussion. That sounds like a plan for for us. So it's been really such fun. Thank you so much. Thank you you so much. Thank Thank you for your time, Casey. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. And I'll say the same to you. And um, we're going to have fun. We're going to have fun learning more about this together. Everybody, thank you for joining us. Couldn't do it without you. If you will share with your friends this link and try to infect more brains of dog trainers and other animal trainers so we can all enjoy spending time together. I would so appreciate it. You all take care, and we'll see you next time. Hey, fans. Are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Covert. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.